Hello and welcome to Parley, our weekly discussion podcast. I am G. Sampath, the Hindu Social Affairs Editor and your host for today. This week, we are going to be looking at right to work. This is a subject that's closely linked to an issue that was top of the agenda for the Bihar elections, unemployment. And of course, it's not something that concerns only Bihar. After what the pandemic and the lockdown has done to the economy, there is a tremendous hunger for jobs across the country. And not surprisingly, even in the Bihar elections, the main plank, campaign plank of Tejasvi Yadav's RJD, which was expected to do well, was a promise to provide 10 lakh government jobs. From a policy perspective, this promise of 10 lakh jobs could be viewed as an instance of the state offering to deliver on the right to work. So what exactly is the status of this right in India? Is it a fundamental right? Does it or should it have legal protection? Is it something that policymakers should take seriously? Is it economically feasible given the nature of India's GDP growth, our recently reformed labor laws and India's fiscal constraints? To help answer these questions, we have with us two eminent social scientists, uh, Ritika Khera, who teaches economics at IIT Delhi, and Amit Basole, who heads the Center for Sustainable Development at Azim Premji University, Bangalore. Ritika and Amit, welcome to Parley. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, to start with, uh, Ritika, I'm going to uh, ask you about uh, the international scene. Like, what, what exactly is the status and the thinking about right to work in general? Are there some UN uh, agreements that countries such as India have signed up to and can be held to? Uh, so, you know, the right to work became, uh, was a big topic of discussion post Second World War, especially. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes the right to work uh, in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Um, in India, we don't have a constitutional right to work. Yeah. Uh, but what we do have, as you know, is the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. Uh, which is a step in the direction of a right to work. But this is a statutory right which flows from the NREGA law. And if the law is amended or withdrawn, uh, the right will vanish. And so, you know, under NREGA, a person can hold the state accountable for not fulfilling the right uh, by demanding an unemployment allowance. Uh, but again, if the law goes, then this uh, also goes. But isn't isn't the uh, right to work covered under uh, right to life, which is a fundamental right? Well, I think there is. Uh, look, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't know the legal position in Indian law. But I think there have been some cases in the courts, uh, including in the Supreme Court, where the ambit of the right to life has been expanded to include all kinds of things. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that. Somewhere or the other, right to work may also have been included under the ambit of the right to life. But uh, like I said, I'm not a legal expert and I don't follow uh, court cases uh, very carefully. Okay. Okay. Uh, coming to you, Amit, uh, is, is the right to work uh, uh, a relevant or a meaningful uh, concept anymore given uh, not just in India but worldwide? the kind of uh, growth path countries have been taking. And uh, like, for instance, we have been seeing uh, 
a substantially jobless kind of gdp growth over the past decade or so uh, if i'm not mistaken and the ratio of jobs to gdp has also been steadily declining so how do we uh, how do we make sense of implementing this kind of a concept in this kind of an economy yeah so uh, i would say that under these circumstances it becomes even all the more important uh, for two main reasons i mean if uh, depending on how you look at the term right to work uh, often it is sort of uh, you know interpreted as we as we did alongside unemployment or you know lack of availability of work uh, but there's also another sense of it which is uh, the right to be able to earn my livelihood uh, you know the way i'm doing it without any obstruction or uh, interference and so forth uh, so in both those senses what we have seen in the past few decades is that uh the path of development not only does not create adequate opportunities employment opportunities which you refer to but also actively dispossesses or displaces people from their means of livelihood as well uh so uh, on the one hand displacement and dispossession on the other hand failure to create uh jobs new jobs both of these uh, make the right to work all the more important to uh, imagine in a creative way today and if possible make it uh, a legally impossible right uh, although here i will also say that like ritika i have not been aware of the nitpicks of the debates on this however this is how i see from an economic perspective okay so in terms of uh, how how we can make the right to work work so to speak uh, ritika when some of the ideas which have come forth recently include uh, this uh, Uh, those which focus on urban employment and one of the ideas is uh, decentralized urban employment and training which has been mooted by uh, jean dries uh, how how do you uh, view uh, this kind of an approach right uh, if i can may i add to the previous question that you asked about jobless growth sure yeah see i think uh, it's almost a strategy to talk about gdp growth only and not to talk about who is benefiting from that gdp growth yeah and one part of it is also to you know we hardly ever hear about per capita gdp growth we only hear about overall growth and from people's welfare point of view what matters is the per capita and the distribution issues right uh and this is important for the question that you are asking because uh you know we have to think about what is an appropriate growth strategy for a labor surplus labor abundant country like india the kinds of technologies that are being used for production manufacturing etc they were suitable for countries where they arose you know this automation etc but they may not be suitable for a country like india because it will mean jobless growth if you have more and more automation yeah so i think it is a quite a fundamental question which doesn't get adequate attention so to come to the question that you actually asked uh so i think there are interesting things happening right now one of course is the rjd manifesto which will be nice to talk about but if we talk about this proposal that actually uh, <laughs> in fact is uh, has been in circulation and uh, i think it was amit center that put out the first proposal and then jean has written about it as well as you said so the idea behind this urban employment and you know training kind of program 
is to like nraga to create additional or new employment opportunities so that those who are unemployed or un- underemployed may be gainfully employed uh, and that they can learn earn a dignified living and this dignity is supposed to come from work conditions like being paid a fair wage and having regulated work hours uh, and also from the social value of the work that people do right so to do useful things like repairing uh, school buildings or uh, cleaning parks or public toilets or maintaining footpaths etc um so yeah so i think this it is a workable Uh, agenda i would say but obviously to make it workable we need not only political will but also fiscal resources yeah amit would you like to add something uh, on this because uh, you uh, in your state of working group you've also been stressing on the need for urban uh, employment guarantee uh, options and so on yeah um, so uh, yeah, just briefly to add to what rutika said uh, the perspective that we were coming from was not only the problem of low urban informal sector wages and lack of adequate uh, work but also the profound lack of public goods and assets uh, especially in the smaller towns but also generally in urban india uh, that we thought that it is the state's responsibility to provide these public goods and uh, this can be uh, kind of combined with an employment creation program just like narega does and in narega too the asset creation part is often uh, you know under emphasized so uh, we thought uh, it is it's high time to do both these both these things together and it can be done through something like an urban employment guarantee uh, in terms of the feasibility and implementation there are lots of uh, problems to be considered and we've been working through some of those uh, interestingly a few states have launched uh, Uh, you know uh, what some states are calling a guarantee although it may not really be a guarantee however they are urban employment programs particularly uh, odisha jharkhand and himachal are the three states that launched it in the wake of covid to meet the particular covid employment crisis kerala had one from earlier uh, so we are kind of you know seeing some bits and pieces of this policy which could uh, you know be used as learnings going ahead if say we wanted to try it out on a national scale uh as i said there a lot of uh, issues do remain to be worked out but together with narega something like an open employment guarantee can be a very important piece of the puzzle for uh, you know reaching the right to work on the way to the right to work and uh, then would, would you say then uh, the right to work uh, is is more or less the idea would be equivalent to an employment guarantee is it what it's about Uh, no i wouldn't reduce it to an employment guarantee so uh, see if you take a step back you know what is happening here what we are talking about is uh, how what is the responsibility of the state in a capitalist economy where uh, welfare and employment are not a um, guaranteed byproduct of private economic activity so if private economic activity cannot generate adequate decent livelihoods or also displaces livelihoods like i said earlier then what is it what is incumbent on the state to do that is the question and so i view this as a uh, you know it's a holistic thing so you're talking not only about the state generating its own work for public goods for education for healthcare for administration for all the things that the state is supposed to do it should generate its own employment that then it's also supposed to safeguard 
people's employment right so uh, all the all, everything from ensuring that street vendors have vending zones uh, to fisher workers and fish workers rights are protected uh, to farmers have adequate viable income and all of this comes broadly under the right to livelihood and right to work uh, one small part of that can be an employment guarantee but by no means is it the only thing so speaking of the state's uh, role and responsibilities here, of course, uh, Ritika earlier mentioned about the RJD's promise of 10 lakh uh, uh, government jobs. Uh, so this kind of an approach where the government uh, plays a very large role as, a, and as an employer, so to speak, uh, how do you see uh, that happening uh, uh, going forward? Is it, is it, uh, Ritika, would you want to pitch in on this uh, RJD's scheme? What do you think about it? Right. So, you know, the it's like a page in the manifesto, but uh, some of the points are quite interesting. I, mean, I found it quite interesting and, in fact, even appealing. So one thing is that it picks up on the issue of vacant posts in government jobs. Yeah, there are many posts that are already sanctioned, but to which people have not been recruited so far. And many of these uh, are likely to be essential services like teachers, nurses, other health workers like Asha Didis, Anganwadi workers, doctors even maybe. So not only will this promise uh, create employment, it will also hopefully fill the void in these essential services which are sorely lacking, especially in Bihar. Uh, you know, this is a serious problem. The second uh, kind of interesting thing is that the manifesto promises fulfilling the demands of Anganwadi workers and a few other worker categories. And across the country, actually, not just in Bihar, uh, I don't know if you know that a lot of uh, these workers, frontline workers, uh, especially in these health services, have been agitating, asking for a fair wage. I mean, it's really shocking. Uh, you know, in fact, ASHA workers were supposed to go door to door they're not even paid a salary in many states. They're just paid an honorarium because they're treated as volunteers. Um, the other thing that they mention in the RJD manifesto is equal pay for equal work. And I think that demand has is kind of acknowledging the fact that uh, currently contract teachers are a huge share of all teachers, right? So we have regular teachers with permanent uh, contracts and then we have contract teachers who have these temporary contracts but they are also paid very little uh, so you know they're saying we, that there should be equal pay for equal work which is a well recognized principle uh, in law as well I mean I think there's a law which calls for this uh, so I think the, the ideas in the RJD manifesto are interesting and by the way they also have something like the duet the you know the urban employment program that uh, Jean has written about and Amit Center's proposal also. Um, so, you know, that kind of thing also can, that will probably generate the extra jobs. So, uh, on RJD, uh, you were saying that the, the manifesto promise of 10 lakh government jobs, it's, it's, it's based on several interesting ideas because uh, it, uh, it seeks to use the creation of social services and also uh, employment generation both. You know, by by addressing the uh, addressing fair wages for Anganwadi workers, making uh, those kinds of services as permanent jobs for teachers, health workers, Anganwadi workers, and so on. 
so i'm not sure if they're promising permanent jobs but they are promising equal pay for equal work and these details obviously are not uh, are not in the manifesto it's a one page uh, promise as far as employment opportunities are concerned so the, all of this will have to be fleshed out including where's the money going to come from because we know that there are these vacant posts but are they central government posts in which case i suppose the money will have to come primarily from the central government but uh, if they are promising to create new jobs through at the state level then we'll also have to figure out the resources for this because we know that most state governments are uh, their finances are in a bad <coughs> situation okay Uh, Amit, do you want to add uh, something on this idea? Where uh, I think in in some in other countries, for example, in Thailand, they've done this where they've uh, they see that, for example, the healthcare uh, healthcare sector is uh, really underserved. You know, people do a lot of out of pocket expenditure, and and by trying to and in trying to create a universal sort of a universal healthcare kind of a system uh, where it is it's it's labor intensive you've got like you know thousands and hundreds of thousands of nursing jobs being created you're both addressing a public health care or public infrastructure need and at the same time you're also addressing an employment uh, generation uh, need so do you think this is a way that uh, india can uh, look to adopt yeah absolutely and uh, you know this has been an idea that's been out there for a while and uh, uh, last year when we did the urban employment guarantee uh, paper we also alongside did something called universal basic services uh, this terms also out there in several countries and the idea is very much what you said that uh, once again it is incumbent on the state to provide uh, these basic services uh, whether we talk about health education housing you know, a few can be named uh, and in providing them uh, of course employment is generated so uh, i think there's little disagreement that uh, you know the state should provide this there can be disagreement on whether uh you know it should be uni- uh, universally the same and you know whether there is room for private provisioning in health education all of that there will be disagreements but uh, i don't think people disagree that we need to expand spending on these things uh, as a country we are nowhere near comparable countries you know comparable in terms of gdp per capita uh, for example vietnam and uh, many other countries spend quite a bit more as a percentage of their gdp so we should do that and that will create jobs uh there is the fiscal question which i uh, maybe at the uh, you know the, at the end we can come to this together so we we'll, we'll collect all the spending questions so to speak where the money will come from and talk about that but yes the idea is definitely a good one okay so uh moving on to a slightly different aspect uh, of right to work so so when we look at when we can consider work we are of course uh, not only looking at work for work sake but work as a means to access uh, money Uh, which is necessary to access the basic necessities of uh, life so uh, there has been uh, some thinking around this and, uh, and the question has been asked what if we delink this access to money from work and which is what a universal basic income uh, uh, strategy uh, would suggest so given the fact that india has got a huge uh, labor surplus and, and 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 whether it's really you know given the nature of the economy whether it's possible or not to create so many job opportunities Uh, would it is there an argument to be made that a universal basic income rather than a right to work is the, perhaps the way forward amit would you want would you like to pitch uh, in on this uh, okay <laughs> so uh, there's been a lot of you know ink spilled on this especially the employment guarantee versus ubi and so forth 
uh, see, I mean, I, I'm not uh, opposed to some kind of a, a basic income grant, although in our case it is not going to be universal, most likely. Uh, right? But again, to see where this idea has come from, uh, this is a response to the failure of uh, the pattern of economic growth to create remunerative uh, and meaningful work. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and in the developed countries, that's very much the context, I think, in which this is, all of this is coming from. And they, of course, have some resources to devote to something like this. Uh, in our case, uh, it's a very different proposition. Uh, I think that, uh, the, you know, it may have a role, something like a basic income grant can have a role in a policy mix uh, that addresses broadly the question of welfare, uh, you know, in India. But we can do a lot more in providing work, creating work. Uh, work is an important source, not only of money, but also of identity, fulfillment, all of these things. So uh, I think because we are so used to thinking of work also in terms of you know, informality, degrading conditions, and so forth, that uh, this takes a backseat, that in fact, uh, it, is a, it is a core part of uh, being human to, to, to do fulfilling work. Um, and uh, I would very much want that to be the focus while not necessarily negating the role for a basic income grant somewhere in the mix. Okay, Ritika, would you agree with that uh, point of view? Or? Uh, <clears throat> so I think that in the current moment, uh, the, the discussion around UBI, universal basic income, has picked up because of the failure that Amit talked about, yeah, the, uh, the failure to generate remunerative work. But uh, the idea has been around for much longer, and uh, I think it also has very progressive roots, but that's not the moment right now. Uh, what is interesting to me is that um, at, at the moment, the big supporters of UBI in the US, for instance, are people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. And that to me raises questions about, uh, hmm, why is that happening? Uh, as it happens, these are also people who are driving a lot of the automation processes that are killing jobs. Uh, right. So <laughs> I think it's, okay. uh, it's, it's something to ponder over at least. Uh, is to what extent is this support for UBI self-serving or in the public interest when it comes from uh, people like that. Now, in the Indian context, um, this UBI, uh, you know, what, we, what has gotten discussed is actually a very mangled version of uh, the actual thing, right? Because immediately people say it can't be universal because of the cost. And in fact, others say it can't be universal because of equity concerns. Why should I get the money, any money, uh, when I already have such a well-paying job from government? Uh, and then also the amounts that have been discussed barely qualify as basic income, right? Uh, and then on top of that, whenever these uh, programs have been discussed, uh, it's always in the context of, okay, we'll, we'll have to roll back X or Y program. Uh, in order to finance it. Yeah? So this was in the economic survey that Arvind Subramaniam had authored a chapter on UBI where they were looking at how other programs could be scaled down to make fiscal space for UBI. So I would say that for many different reasons, I'm kind of skeptical 
skeptical of the idea of UBI both internationally uh, in its current avatar as well as in in the Indian context in a very different uh, mangled version. Okay, so I mean, again, sticking to the Indian uh, context and getting a little bit more specific in terms of uh, uh, the, the ground realities. That is, uh, when recently we've had those uh, the change in the labor law uh, regime. Uh, where 44 old laws have been codified into like four uh, labor codes. So, and, and, and many would argue that uh, these labor codes have sort of uh, uh, resulted in a dilution of whatever rights, you know, I mean, regardless of how uh, strictly they were being implemented or not being implemented. There has been a, right, a dilution of the right to work in terms of actual uh, in work, you know, as, as workers are working. So in this scenario, how meaningful is it to speak of a, of a right to work in today's India, given the labor regime? Ritika, would you like to comment on that? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, Amit, you can probably go first and then Ritika can. Uh, okay, uh, so, uh, well, I mean, uh, to start on the labor codes. Now, uh, uh, your right to question, you know, is it at all f worth raising the right to work question when very fundamental rights at work or in work are being violated and not only violated for lack of legislation but also legislation being diluted. Um, so in terms of the labor law code, uh, code changes and so forth, one thing that you know, the way I think about it is uh, you know, going back to what Ritika said earlier, it's a labor surplus economy, we all know that. We know that in the capital labor uh, bargaining process, labor is structurally weak in India, which means that the state, uh, it's incumbent again on the state to uh, provide that support to labor, which is structurally weak. The state has been doing the opposite. Uh, all of us know that as well. Uh, so it has abdicated on a very fundamental responsibility in that sense. Now, coming to the uh, changes, I mean, I, I would put it very simply as, you know, if you look at three dimensions of these things, welfare, equity, and efficiency. By welfare, I mean, what is the universal flow beyond which we don't allow things to fall? Uh, whether that is working conditions or, or other job security or whatever else, uh, welfare, equity, equity meaning uh, what do uh, you know? How equally are protections, labor protections, actually shared given scarce state capacity? The government doesn't have infinite capacity to enforce things. So, given its uh, constraints, uh, how equally are these protections afforded to workers? And efficiency meaning uh, do laws actually get in the way? of scaling up of businesses and achieving productivity gains. Uh, so uh, the conversation uh, you know, revolves around all of these things. Uh, now the current changes uh, do not improve the universal floor, uh, which they should have done. So on the welfare front, they don't do much. Uh, on the equity front uh, also, uh, you know, what they really do is they take away certain protections from the well-protected part and do not increase the protections to the underprotected part. So there is no, uh, uh, you know, redistribution, which you might even be willing to accept to an extent. But what they've done is made it easier to convert permanent workers into contract workers through the IR bill, uh, but have done nothing to end the contract system. Uh, so overall, they've reduced uh, the average standards. That's on the equity front. And on the efficiency front, it remains to be seen. I mean, it's possible that some of these compliances being coming down and so forth can help small uh, enterprises to expand. And that might be the only good thing to possibly come out of this, but time will tell. Okay, Ritika, you wanted to add anything to this? Yeah, just very briefly, <clears throat> I think uh, over the decades, there has been a dilution of worker rights in India. 
this has happened through the law and also in the implementation of whatever legal protections exist. Uh, however, this very key point gets completely lost in the debate that happens, say, in English dailies, for instance, uh, <clears throat> because there the narrative, mainstream narrative is still that law is, uh, labor is pampered and there are all kinds of ridiculous uh, compliances that uh, the companies have to, uh, you know, fulfill and all of that. But, you know, that, that segment of the workforce is just like 5 or 10%, right? For the rest, it's basically a free-for-all. Uh, it's a free market uh, of the most exploitative uh, kind, right? Uh, there is very le uh, poor legal protection for them. There is very little awareness of the protections that do exist. And there is very weak, proactive implementation of the legal protections uh, yeah, that, that are there. And I think these labor law, these uh, labor codes that have just come into being, they just, they're sort of furthering that kind of process of, I think, weakening the position of labor uh, in the Indian market. Okay. So okay. Uh, in, in the, uh, add one small thing to that. Um, yeah, yeah, please. Just to connect it to what we were talking about, uh, you know, employment guarantee earlier. Uh, that uh, you know, the, uh, an employment guarantee, an effective employment guarantee program, can be an excellent uh, uh, you know solution to the structural weakness of labor that I mentioned. So, given that uh, we have, uh, you know, as I said, constrained state capacity, uh, enforcing laws is not all that easy. There are all kinds of political economy considerations there too. Uh, tightening the labor market is uh, you know an excellent way to ensure that uh, workers are treated well. Uh, and uh, this is how we also see this employment guarantee uh, in a functioning as far as the rights in work is concerned, not, not the right to work, but the rights in work, that if, you, if the state steps in and significantly reduces the surplus labor, particularly in the casual market and so forth, then it automatically creates the conditions for better treatment of workers through this tightening. Right. Uh, I mean, speaking of tightening the labor market, there is, I mean, there's an interesting uh, alternative scenario uh, which I wanted uh, maybe both of you to comment on, which is Haryana's 75% uh, reservation of jobs in the private sector for uh, uh, locals. I mean, uh, there is, of course, a political dimension to it. And, and and given our topic for the day, is would that constitute a kind of a violation of the right to work as well? Like, how would you look at it? Yeah. Uh, Ritika, you want to I go mean, can go first. Oh, okay. Um, uh, sure, sure. So, yeah, this is a, again a very thorny issue, and many states have tried this, some kind of thing like this. Um, see, I mean, I I can see where the objections come from, obviously, and there are some objections coming from the capital side, which is you know investment and uh, investment climate efforts and so forth, and there are objections coming from labor side too. Uh, which is about the freedom to move uh, in, in wherever you want in the country in, to work and so forth. However, I can also see where this is coming from. You know, this goes back to what we've been discussing throughout this program, which is this inability of the growth process to generate uh, employment, and particularly for youth. Uh, so, youth-educated unemployment is very high. That's in fact where entirely India's unemployment is concentrated among educated youth, more or less. So that's how I see this. You know, these are uh, responses 
to that particular problem. Of course, there are not solutions, uh, but uh, you know, there is the legitimate question: How can we ensure that there are adequate local opportunities? So that people don't need to go uh, long distances, particularly don't need to go for long distances for very precarious and underpaid work for sure. But even when they live, they don't wish to migrate and they wish to work where they are from, then uh, we should be able to do that. We should be able to provide them that, and and we are failing to do that. Uh, so that's the context in which I see these policies. Uh, I mean, they don't they, they don't work in and of themselves, but there is a legitimate grievance at the root of it. I think. Okay, uh, Ritika, you want to add to that? Well, before I heard Amit, I was going to say that this conceiving such laws should be considered an act of a tukre tukre gang. <laughs> <laughs> Because I mean, and you know, I am saying it jokingly, uh, but there is this problem, right? That on the one hand, some voices in government want to create one nation, one market. That was. Uh, you know that has been said in the context of gst and also this electronic market and on the other hand some state governments are coming up with these ideas uh, such as preserving jobs so i'm not sure how much um, buy in the law will have from the private sector how it is going to be enforced whether introducing such a distortion in the labor market will reap any substantive benefits for labor itself even for local labor right and i feel that the emphasis should be on generating jobs and generating jobs in large numbers rather than doing you know trying to fix the problem in this uh, divisive way Right, I think there is there is a I guess there is a lot going on in this whole uh, politics of unemployment. I think it it requires an episode to itself uh, to to look at it in detail. Uh, I I just want to move to a somewhat different uh, uh, area here. For example, uh, this question of right to work. Uh, we have been speaking in terms of employment uh, guarantee and dignity and so on, but but in the United States. Uh, It's 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 basically the MNCs and the billionaires who have been advocating for the right to work, and and there it's more like the right of a worker who uh, who does not need to be uh, a part of a union but still wants to be uh, employed. You know, so it's become like a union busting kind of a tactic which undermines collective uh, uh, bargaining. And, and given the kind of uh, increasing integration of global markets and economies. Uh, is there any danger of uh, something like this happening in india where you 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 something an idea comes in as a progressive uh, kind of a formulation like for example of the ubi and then you get a legislation which is completely different is that a real threat or am i being too paranoid here amit uh, well i, I think uh, you know we, we definitely shouldn't underestimate the power of uh, Uh, whoever it is you're talking about, capital or or elites or whatever, to subvert pretty much any progressive agenda to their needs. That that happens a lot, and I don't think that is being paranoid. In this particular context of the women busting in the U.S., I, I don't know enough. I know just about exactly what you said. Actually, is my understanding, uh, but I don't see that as a uh, really a relevant issue for us at this. Point. Okay, and uh, okay, Ritika, do you is there anything you want to add here? Right. So you know, uh, because uh, I wanted to see the what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes. I googled right to I uh, not googled I duck duck googled right to work, 
and it was really interesting that the first hit for right to work is this american interpretation of it that you have just described and really it's the first time in my life that i see the right to work being interpreted in this manner so uh, and i wonder if it's the i mean even if i use dr go i i get that as the first hit not the second or third hit uh, but it's interesting what search engines uh, or how search engines can shape our understanding of some of these very crucial ideas also unless you're completely very vigilant now uh, you know whether this american kind of interpretation of right to work is likely to happen in india um i mean i think that this uh, this is a pretty blatant kind of case of you know uh, mangling a good idea uh, but i would say that america is not a role model uh, as far as social and economic rights are concerned yeah socio economic rights are concerned and that generally for socio economic rights it's the western european and the scandinavian countries that one looks to uh, more often for uh, interesting solutions and ideas and progressive ideas uh, but we have to be vigilant i mean elements of plutocracy in india are visible everywhere you look so it wouldn't be surprising if you know uh, these kinds of anti labor interpretations become fine currency right okay uh, we'll uh, i mean i'm i'm uh, we have, we now want to the final question here so i'll go with ritika uh, first so uh, i mean do you think i mean taking a step back at a at a broader political and a philosophical level uh, uh, isn't uh, uh, at some level asking for the right to work uh, sort of setting the bar a bit too low in terms of politics I mean, as human beings, we spoke of dignity and you know uh, access and so on. Shouldn't we be actually asking for the right to leisure? Isn't that what we deserve? Isn't there a really old poster from that Second World War period which says eight hours of work, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of rest? I think that that is the original kind of demand, uh, and I think that's possibly the. the correct way to view this is that if you guarantee good 8 hours of work then automatically you're guaranteeing that the rest is uh, for you to enjoy your life or the fruits of your labor right i mean yeah i guess uh, there is ever a, a proper legislation on this right to leisure should be i guess uh, one of the clauses or the key clauses uh, amit any thoughts on this question See, yeah, I mean, I know as Ritika said, this is an old debate, and in fact, uh, uh, you know, the right to uh, what is it? Uh, right to be lazy is this book from the 19th century. I think Paul Raffage, a uh, book which is a response to the right to work uh, campaign going on at the time, uh, and he was saying, why, why asking for the right to work? We should ask for the right to be lazy, uh, and this has been uh, a continuing debate, particularly in Marxian political economy. Of course, it's a very live debate. that uh, just as you said it plays into uh, essentially capitalism and the work ethic right it's uh, the right to work is basically the right to be to be exploited by capital uh, and uh, that that is a perfectly fair point of view i think as far as i am concerned uh, if you are really looking for a future of humanity beyond all of this uh, then clearly uh, you know one cannot take this narrow a perspective Uh, and work, uh, work should be fulfilling. Work should be creative, and work is 
has to be put in its place, uh, which is uh, hopefully a very small place. And uh, we had many moments of people prophesizing that capitalism would produce enough surplus uh, for work days to, re to reduce, work weeks to reduce, leisure to increase, and there's been endless writing about this from Keynes on down. Uh, this hasn't always happened. It happened some places. Uh, in other places, it's quite the opposite that has happened. Working hours have increased, and Juliet Shore has done quite a nice work on this long, long durée kind of work on capitalism and working hours, for example. Uh, but more recently, you do find that in, the, that in certain European countries, they are becoming serious about reducing the uh, work, increasing leisure. Uh, in our context, again, is different, right? So uh, the question, as always, is do we pass through these stages of industrial capitalism and so forth to emerge on the other side in some sort of post-industrial society where leisure is valued again? Or can we imagine other paths, you know, without that dragging ourselves through sort of this mud, so to speak? Uh, and, you know, of course, I don't have the answer to that, but, but there are many lively debates going on. Right. Yeah, the debates and the struggles to find the right place for work. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, that's something is going to be ongoing. Uh, Ritika, any last words on this whole discussion? You have the last words. No, thank you. I think I've uh, said enough. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Ritika and Amit. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Sampath.